Good morning, church. It's great to be with you uh, today, and uh, I'm excited for what we are going to be looking at over the next several weeks. If you're visiting with us, especially online, if you can hit that connect link, I'd love to connect with you, love to get with you, to share with you. This morning, as um, we begin to, to push ahead, I just want to give you a quick update on just kind of where things are. I just need you to continue to pray. Just continue to pray for the church, continue to pray for negotiations with our landlord. Unfortunately, uh, the main decision maker, of course, was out of town this week. And so uh, I still don't know anything other than I think we're very close. And I'm hoping by the first of the week we can have uh, at least something known so we know whether we can be here or whether we need to pursue one of the other avenues that, that we have found. So continue to pray for that because continue to lift that up, uh, that would be awesome. Let's kind of get, jump in, because we got a lot to uh, begin getting through. In his book, First Things First, Stephen Covey writes about an Austrian psychologist by the name of Viktor Frankl. He survived the death camps of Nazi Germany. Frankl made an interesting discovery about why Some survived the horrible conditions and why some did not. He looked at a lot of factors. He looked at health and vitality and family structure, intelligence and survival skills. Finally, he concluded that none of these factors were primarily responsible for their survival. He found that the single most significant factor that kept many of them alive was a sense of a future vision. In other words, a compelling conviction that they had a mission to perform some important work left to do. So let me ask you, what kind of vision do you have for your life, for your family, or how about for our church? Now, the reason I ask you this or ask you that is this, if we are not careful, we can just kind of skate through life satisfied with the status quo, ignoring the incredible power that vision can have in our life. Somebody wrote, and I like this, they said, everybody ends up somewhere in life. A few people end up somewhere on purpose. Those are the ones with vision. Helen Keller was once asked, What would be worse than being born blind? To which she replied, having sight without a vision. That's why this morning we are kicking off a short series called Seeing the Unseen, Discovering Our Vision and Mission. And so for the next several weeks, we'll discover what the Bible has to say about having a God-sized vision and a God-ordained mission. And we'll discover what our vision and mission as a church is as well. That's why I'm excited to be able to unpack these next several weeks for you. Because I really believe that it can go a long way into helping us become the church God has created us to be. And so over these next several weeks, I really encourage you to reach out and invite people, either in person or online, because it's important for people to begin to hear what we are about. So let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, I just thank you so much for this day. I thank you for all you do. You're such an amazing God. And we can't thank you enough. 
God, we know you're in control. We just got to release our hold on that and allow you to move. So we give everything to you, Father. Now be with us as we unpack this incredible thing called vision. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you, how do you define vision? I mean, what's it mean to you? Well, Webster defines it this way. The faculty of sight, unusual foresight, or a mental image produced by the imagination. John Maxwell puts it this way. He said, vision is the ability to see, which is awareness. The ability to believe, which is attitude. And the ability to do, which is action. In other words, it's the ability to see beyond the surface of human potential and to see the possible solutions to the everyday problems of life. You see, it's not what we are, but it's what we can become. Now, as we look in the scriptures, the Hebrew word that appears most often in the Old Testament for vision is a word called shazon and means a dream a revelation, or a vision. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18 is probably the best known verse containing Shazon. It says in the King James, where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Now, I love how the Message Bible paraphrases this. Listen to what it says. It says, if people can't see what God is doing They stumble all over themselves. Now, I like that. And the reason is because all you've got to do is look around and you see people stumbling all over themselves every day in our society simply because they're not seeing God. If people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, vision, they are most blessed. You see, vision gives significance to the otherwise meaningless details of our lives. It's not always about what we're doing, but rather why we are doing. Why we are doing it that really makes the difference for us. Let me illustrate it like this. Let's suppose that I tell you that today at 3 o'clock, I need everybody to come uh, behind the building and here's what we're going to do. We've got a huge pile of sand and a bunch of bags. And we're going to fill those bags with sand. And then we're going to carry them down to the other end of the parking lot. And we're going to dump them out and make another pile. Now, if I was to tell you that, the first thing you'd say is, you're nuts. <laughs> you're crazy. I ain't going to do that. Why? Because it's, it makes no sense. There's no purpose behind it. It's just meaningless. But what if I was to tell you that because of all the heavy rains we've just recently had, we brought in a pile of sand in the back with bags, and we're going to meet here at 3 o'clock, and we are going to fill bags with sand. And then we are going to take them and deliver them to a town south of us that's on the river that's ready to be flooded. But those sandbags are going to help save that community. Now, let me tell you, if I told you that, that would make all the difference in the world, wouldn't it? Because that's, that brings meaning and purpose and vision 
to what I want you to do. You see, there's nothing glamorous about just filling bags with sand, but saving a town, man, that's another thing altogether. Here's the thing. Too many times the routines of life begin to feel like we're just filling bags with sand for no good reason. But take those same routines, take those same responsibilities, and view them through the lens of vision, and suddenly everything looks different. You see, vision will bring your world into focus. So where does a vision come from? Well, a vision is born in the soul of a man or a woman who is consumed with the tension between what is and what could be. Anyone who has ever been frustrated or brokenhearted about the way things are in light of the way they believe things could be is a candidate for vision. And God-given visions, let me tell you, they will always stand in contrast to the world as it is. You see, vision demands change, but it also requires someone to champion the cause, someone who is willing to put his or her neck on the line, someone who has the faith and the courage to carry out God's vision. And whether you realize it or not, God has a plan for your life. You're not here by accident. You have a purpose. You have a mission. He has a vision for your life. Look at what God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, 11. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you hope and a future. Here's the thing. A God-given vision will give us joy. It will give us purpose. And it will turn lukewarm, sleepy church members into red-hot living soldiers who aren't afraid of change and who are willing to risk it all to make a difference in the world we live for Jesus. So, as we begin to think about how we can have a God-given vision in our life, there's a great story in the Old Testament that gives us a picture, a mental picture of that kind of a vision and how that vision is created and formed in the heart of a person. The story is found in the book of Nehemiah. It's the story of Nehemiah. Let me set the stage for you. A few years after Ezra sent back to King Artaxerxes, with the authority and resources to finish the temple in Jerusalem, God begins to move in the heart of someone who would be used to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. This man's name, Nehemiah. And he comes on the scene in the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. If you got your Bibles, open them up where you are and turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. And let's see what we can learn about this thing called vision. Let's begin reading in verse 1. I am Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, and in this book I, I tell what I have done. During the month of Cheslev, in the 20th year that Artaxerxes ruled Persia, 
I was in the fortress city of Susa when my brother Hananiah came with some men from Judah. And so I asked them about the Jews who had escaped from being captives in Babylon. I asked them about the city of Jerusalem, and they told me, those captives who have come back are having all kinds of troubles. They are terribly disgraced. Jerusalem's walls are broken down, and its gates have been burned. Now, Nehemiah lived in the royal city of Susa, and that was the winter residence for King Artaxerxes. And we know as we go on down in this passage in verse 11 that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. Now, let me tell you, that was an awesome job. Being the cupbearer for the king was incredible. It was an awesome job. You know why? Because he got to test the king's wine and food to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. What an amazing job. I wonder how many resumes they got turned in when that job opened up. Probably not a lot. But his job wasn't as bad as it sounds because his position made him a man of great influence. He had intimate access to royalty. He had political standing and a place to live in the palace. And yet, despite having all of that, he never lost his love and concern for the homeland or for his people. And so when one of his brothers returned from Jerusalem, verse 2 said that Nehemiah asked him about the conditions of the people as well as the city of Jerusalem. Now, here's something that I think is interesting. Nehemiah was born in captivity. He had never been to Jerusalem. He had only heard stories about it. And he knew that his ancestors had been led away in chains when the Babylonians destroyed it. So it would have been really easy for Nehemiah to just insulate himself from what was happening in Jerusalem. After all, he had never been there. He hadn't seen it. But he didn't do that. His concern was too deep and the news was too bad. And as he thought about Jerusalem and he listened to the report that the survivors were in great trouble, and not only in great trouble, but they were literally living in disgrace, he could barely stand it. He began to see the unseen. And it began to create a vision within his heart. And that vision came from three key motivators. And as we as a church begin to move into this next chapter of our story, they are three key motivators that need to be lived out in us as well. Especially if we are going to have a God-given mission and a God-ordained Vision. So, key motivator number one. He looked around and saw the need. He looked around and he saw the need. Even though he wasn't physically in Jerusalem, the words of his brother 
began to paint an incredible picture in his mind. And he began to visualize what was happening and what was taking place. And it literally broke his heart. You see, it was hard to accept what had happened to this incredibly great city called Jerusalem. After all, the the city was supposed to be a light to the nations, but instead it had become an international joke. And it was also hard to accept the complacency and the apathy of the people who were still living there. I mean, they didn't even care that they were living among the rubble. In fact, they just accepted it as the norm instead of being concerned enough to do something about it. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment and let let some things sink in. Because I want to be very honest with you right now. Nothing is ever going to change in your life, in my life, in our church, or in this world we live in until we become concerned enough to see the need. Until we become concerned enough to see the need. You see, if we're not careful, it can become really easy to get complacent. And not really be concerned with what's going on around us. The reality is some of us don't want to think about the stuff that's going on in our own life, let alone think about the stuff that's going on in somebody else's life. And the sad truth is some of you may be living in the rubble of life right now and it doesn't even bother you. I mean, that's what's crazy. You may be living in the rubble And it just doesn't bother you. The complacency and the apathy has set into your heart so much that you just kind of overlook it. And so let me ask you, what do you see when you look at your life and the lives of those around you? What do you see? What do you see when you walk out these doors and you walk into the community that we live in? I mean, do you see the needs that are there, the needs of the people? I mean, let me tell you, we live in a hurting world that's filled with broken hearts and fractured families and frantic lives, and they need us to stop long enough to see the need. You see, Nehemiah looked around and he saw the need. We need to look around and see the need. The second motivator is this. He looked inside and he felt the need. He looked inside and he felt the need. Let me tell you, there is no such thing as an emotionless concern. I mean, just look at what Nehemiah did after he heard what was happening. The first part of verse four goes on to say this. When I heard this, I sat down and cried. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm not necessarily an overly emotional person, but there are at least three things that can, at times, kind of just choke me up and kind of get to me. One of those is certain scenes from movies or TV shows. I don't know if you ever been, especially for me, you know, Lucy and I will be at late at night, we're laying in bed watching TV, she may be reading a book, 
And there's whatever this show is on or movie we've been watching, whatever is on. There's certain scenes when they come up, all of a sudden I can feel it. I'm getting choked up. And, you know, so I turn over to the other side so she can't see me. And then you got to go like this and wipe the tear off your cheek. I mean, you know, that's just kind of what we do. So there are certain scenes, certain things that just kind of get to me. That's just the way it is. Another thing is my family. That can choke me out. My wife, my kids, my grandkids. It's probably been six years ago now. Micah, I think, was around six years old. And I was, we were out in Oklahoma visiting uh, Kyle and Lorraine and the grandkids. And Kyle had to take me down to the airport in Oklahoma City. And Micah was in the back seat. He was riding with us. And Kyle and I are talking, and there's music playing, but I could hear Micah, and he's reading in the back seat. He's six years old, and he's reading. And I said, Kyle, what's he reading? Because I, I really couldn't tell because of the music. He said, oh, he's reading the Bible. He said, Lorraine teaches the kids how to read by reading them the Bible. And let me tell you, that, that got to me. A few years, a few years ago, I got really weepy when I thought about how much I was spending on the the boys' college. But another thing is this, that really gets to me, and that is seeing changed lives. It's seeing changed lives. Now, I want you to know that I have a lot of emotion for this church, especially right now, in the midst of everything that we're going through, trying to locate that, that place, that building, trying to secure this place trying to move forward financially, trying to make sure that we are where we need to be. And I want you to know I have a lot of emotion for this church and what this church can become. So I'm just going to warn you right up front, as we move forward down the road and we start seeing people come to accept Jesus, we see people come to get their relationship with him in order. We see men who come and say, I want to be a godly husband. I want to be a godly father. I want to be a better friend. Let me tell you, that's going to get to me. And that's going to choke me up. When we see people coming out of the baptistry new in Jesus, I'll get overwhelmed with emotion and joy. When we see people finding their purpose, serving in our church and serving in this community, that will touch my heart. When we see the church body being energized by a great cause, I'm going to feel it in my chest. Yesterday, Lucy and I, and one of actually one of our newer newer families in the church, Yvonne, she helped us yesterday as we we put all that food that we had collected for Southwest Elementary, and we took it and delivered it. And let me tell you, seeing the expression on their faces, the ladies who were there stocking those shelves because most of those shelves were empty and having them say, I am so thankful for this because we've got people coming today and we didn't know if we were going to be able to give them food and now we can give them food. You see, those great causes like that, it speaks to me and it hits me in my chest. When we see kids laughing and singing and learning about the God who loves them, that moves me beyond words. And when I look outside of this place and I picture all the people who need Jesus and who need a church like ours, it breaks my heart to think that they may not get a chance to hear about the grace and the love of Jesus if we don't provide a place for that to happen. I mean, that's why I encourage you to continue in your giving. 
because we want to continue to have a place where we can reach people. You know, somebody wrote, there are many things in life that will catch your eye, but only a few things will catch your heart. Pursue them. Like Nehemiah, my prayer is that the needs around us will capture our hearts. Motivator number three, the last one. He looked above and he shared the need. He looked above and he shared the need. Verse four went on to say, then for several days I mourned. I went without eating to show my sorrow and I prayed. Nehemiah was so moved by the need that he fasted and prayed on a regular basis. In fact, we know from comparing the different dates in this book that he wept and he fasted and he prayed over a period of about four months. And this prayer that he is going to pray is the first of 12 throughout the book. Now, here's the problem I see with a lot of believers today. And I found myself in this same spot many times, far too often. You see, there are times when we make our plans and then we ask God to bless or to just rubber stamp what we've already decided. I mean, we, we see something that we want to do, or we, we see something we want to buy, or we want to do this or that or that, and we've made up our minds that that's what we're going to do. In fact, we may already have moved ahead, and then we stop and think, oh, yeah, I better pray and ask God about this. And it's just like we're saying, God, I just want you to rubber stamp what I've already decided in my heart. But Nehemiah, he didn't make that mistake. He understood something that we all need to remember, and that is this. The preparation process can't be overlooked. Before you build, you pray. Before you change, you pray. God does his best work when we are seeking his face in prayer. I believe prayer moves the very hand of God to work behind the scenes in preparing the way. I think it helps to distinguish between a good idea and a God idea. I think it keeps us looking, keeps us trusting, and it keeps the burden fresh, and it will keep us united around a God-given vision for the future. So let me ask you, what makes you fall to your knees before the very face of God? What makes you weep to the point that you're willing to be God's instrument of change? Let me tell you, amazing things happen. In fact, Miraculous things happen when we honestly seek the face of God in prayer. Let's reflect and we'll close. <coughs> Excuse me. Again, visions are born in the soul of a person or a church who is consumed with the tension between what is and what could be. It's not just something that could be done, it's something that must be done. And that's exactly where Nehemiah found himself. And as his God-given vision to rebuild, the walls began to increase. So did the opportunities to accomplish that vision. In fact, as you continue to go through the book of Nehemiah, you discover that the king not only sent him back, but he also funded the project, which was amazing. Now, the other thing that you discover through the through this book is this, just because he had a God-given vision, it didn't make it easy. And we've got to remember that. 
Just because you have a God-given vision, it doesn't mean it's going to be a piece of cake. It's not going to be a cakewalk. It's going to be difficult. It won't be easy. Nehemiah had to deal with critics whose criticism was both hurtful as well as personal. Let me tell you, I've experienced that in the last several months as we've been moving ahead. I've had people tell me, well, why don't you just quit? Or, or I don't think this is, has a chance to make it. There's always going to be those critics who don't understand the God-given vision that God has placed within a person's heart. But he also had to deal with fear because the criticism turned into threats of violence for Nehemiah. And it would have been easy for Nehemiah to just tuck his tail and to run. But just as Nehemiah had not allowed criticism to distract him, he also did not allow fear to take him away from the vision that God had given him. So here's something that I want you to remember. At some point in your vision, you may find it hard to deal with the critics. You may get caught up playing the what-if game. And you may even want to run and hide. But like Nehemiah, never forget. Never forget who's in control of your vision. If it's you, then running and hiding and giving up will always be an option. But if it's God, running and hiding and giving up will never be an option. There's nothing to fear when the outcome is dependent upon God. So again, what kind of vision do you have? I'm excited over these next several weeks. Next week, we're going to look at another story in the Old Testament. It talks about vision. And then next week, we're going to begin to unpack our vision here at Westside. And what that God-given vision is. So my prayer is that you will reach out to others, that you will tell others, that you will help others to begin to catch a vision. But let me be totally honest with you. You'll never have a God-given vision until God has your heart. And so maybe that's what you need to start with, is just turning your life over to Jesus to accept him into your life, maybe to repent of the sin that's there and, and to come back and say, God, I'm yours. Help me to have your vision. Whatever your need is, hit that connect link. I would love to connect with you and talk with you. Go to our Next Steps page on our website and that can help you lead you into that relationship with Jesus. But whatever you need, please let us know so that we can begin praying for you and and hopefully talking with you. Pray with me. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the vision you give. God, I pray that you just help us to be who you've called us to be. Help us to have that God-given vision. It's in your name we pray. Amen.